Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 18. It's the second episode in a two-part series covering the single bullet or magic bullet theory. In its work during the 1970s, the House Select Committee on Assassinations took a look at the single bullet theory. And today, you'll learn a little bit more about what they did and how they concluded on this controversial aspect of the assassination. Turning ahead for just a moment, we've got some exciting episodes, episodes 19 and 20, coming this weekend. I won't tell you what they're about. I'm just going to tease you a little bit, and I hope you'll like them. I think you will. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 18. One thing was for sure about the members and the staff of the newly formed House Select Committee on Assassinations, or HSCA. The HSCA felt that such investigations would particularly benefit from the scientific advances of the 15 years that had gone by since the Warren Commission undertook its own investigation. The country had grown a lot since then. We'd done a lot that John Kennedy had set his sights on for the country. We had gone to the moon. And doing this had advanced the use of a whole host of practical technologies. Things were changing rapidly in a lot of ways, and technology was on the forefront of everything. The review of the single bullet theory was clearly an area where the HSCA intended to up their game and use these new techniques to reassess a host of matters that impacted how things concluded when the Warren Commission finally settled on its conclusions and particularly on its own single bullet theory. It was not 1963 anymore, but unfortunately it was only 1978. There was still no lasers for laser analysis. There was still no computer animation models yet. But there would be more science applied everywhere in the analysis. And the analysis would be done by a generation that was less invested in the original narrative that constrained the Warren Commission and its staff. But with deference to the investigators in both generations, by and large, both staffs were nevertheless interested in finding out the truth. At the outset, the HSCA was not sure what they would find, but they knew there was plenty of fertile ground to find problems with the original analysis and then problems with the original conclusions. Still, this exercise was not just about proving the Warren Commission wrong. Ultimately, it was about finding the truth, the real truth about who killed the president and why. Similar to the Warren Commission in its day, there was plenty of money available to the HSCA, at least at the outset, to hire experts and pay for all the work that would be done to revalidate much of the Warren Commission findings and still then dig deeper where it was clear that the Warren Commission had ignored witnesses or for whatever reason, did not thoroughly investigate an important area. 
They would apply new and emerging forensic technologies, too. Of course, all of this would have to be done in a rather cold case environment. After all, it was now 15 years after the assassination. There were a lot of topics that impacted, either directly or indirectly, the Warren Commission conclusions on the single bullet. The wide range of issues that could tip the scale for a conspiracy and a second shooter are probably evident from all the discussions we have had in the most recent episodes, so I won't enumerate them here. What I will do is set forth some of the questions that the HSCA set out to answer about the single bullet theory and correspondingly some of the technology and approaches that it was now committed to using in order to get to the truth. The HSCA deployed more advanced techniques in several areas related to the single bullet theory. Advanced photographic analysis was undoubtedly the most pervasive technique. Deployment of a forensic pathology panel consisting of nine expert pathologists was another prong to their approach. They also redeployed some of the high-powered technology that was present in 1963, but simply reapplied it in its more modern, advanced form. Neutron activation analysis applied to the bullet fragments is a good example of that. These methods were used throughout the HSCA reassessment of the Warren Commission, and of these areas, the enhanced photographic techniques were particularly important in a wide area of evidential review. Not only was it applied to photos taken that day in Dealey Plaza, but advanced photographic analysis was used on such things as the famous pictures taken of Oswald holding a rifle. There had always been a suspicion that those pictures taken into evidence were forgeries. You know, Oswald's head placed on another man's body. If that kind of thing could be proven, the forgery of a picture like that, it certainly would have pointed to a conspiracy. And the extraordinary nature of this type of forgery, in perhaps more ways than any other evidence re-examination, would point to a setup of Oswald. It would be the key to proving the sheep-dipping circumstances that Jim Garrison spoke about in 1967, and a confirming comment to Oswald's now-famous cry in the hallway of the Dallas Police Department when he exclaimed, I'm a patsy. I'll digress for a few minutes more. More than 510 photographs that relate directly to the assassination were taken by approximately 75 photographers, and they are in addition to substantial other relevant photographic evidence pertaining to events that did not involve the actual assassination. This photographic evidence provided the Warren Commission with a basis for attempting to resolve important issues such as the number, timing, and source of the shots fired at President Kennedy. The generally poor quality of portions of those materials, however, had resulted in many interpretive questions regarding matters that the Warren Commission purportedly resolved. As a result, in the years since the Warren Commission, independent researchers had criticized its findings, findings that were based upon photographic evidence, basically that those findings were incomplete and unsubstantiated. It is clear that the Warren Commission investigation was limited for a number of reasons when it comes to the photographic evidence. 
It did not have access to all critical photograph materials, such as those from the autopsy. In addition, potentially important photographs were not located by the time the commission did its work. The commission did not have its own investigators, but instead had to rely on other government agencies, thereby bringing the credibility of its report, if not the quality, into question. A new factor for the HSCA was the emerging ability to use photographic enhancement technology. That technology was simply not as sophisticated back in 1963. It was in this spirit that the HSCA, at the outset of its work, had great ambition in the use of photographic analysis to help solve the case, so to speak. And it was the hope of the HSCA that in applying these enhancement techniques that they might identify even whether or not other shooters were present in some of the photographs. This proved to be ambitious and ultimately inconclusive in its results on a number of fronts as the work of the HSCA progressed. Well, that was a digression and a broader discussion of the photographic evidence is to come. But for now, we will focus on how the HSCA used some of these technologies and combine them with other analysis in their review of matters affecting the single bullet theory. There are a handful of important aspects that the Commission focused on in this redo, so to speak. First, there was a significant criticism of the bullet path that the single bullet took. The right-to-left angle of penetration to Kennedy's neck followed by the dubious right turn and alignment on the next leg of the bullet's journey into Conley's back has always been a question that wasn't totally resolved simply by the Warren Commission comments. Second, the broader body alignment, drawing a line through all those points on both Kennedy and then Conley, and having them all line up, line up during a series of frames when Conley was rotating between a right and left orientation, Remember, Conley began to rotate and look right to try and see the president once he heard the first shot, and then, once he couldn't see him, he then turned and started rotating back left. There was a lot of movement there. And so here was the real question. Where in the Zapruder frame count was their body alignment just right to make the reality of a single bullet doing all that damage truly possible? Upon closer analysis of the photographic evidence, would this be possible at all? During the Warren Commission testimony of its own photographic expert, Lyndall Shanefelt, there was clear indication based on comment made by the doctors and relayed by Mr. Shanefelt that after frame 235, that Conley's juxtaposition made the alignment of such a single bullet shot not possible. It was this kind of fact that I talked about in a previous episode of our podcast that showed up all over the commission's original work. Right there in broad daylight, there was the expert talking about a problem that was well documented in the testimony to the commission, and it just didn't get resolved or at least further pursued and discussed to some better level of satisfaction. Warren Commission critics have asserted that in the Zapruder film, Governor Conley first reacts to his wounds at some time during the frame sequence Z234 to Z238, or about 
half a second to one and a half seconds after the president was hit. Keep in mind that the Warren Commission concluded that the president was struck somewhere between frames Z210 and Z225. Critics say that this delay proves that Kennedy and Conley could not have been hit by the same bullet. Further, the critics contend that if this is true, then there had to be a second shooter since the Malacher Carcano rifle had our already famous 2.3 second minimum interval established between firing a round of ammunition. This limited time frame, at most the time frame between Z210 and Z238, which is 28 frames, is still less than the 42 frames required to reload and refire the Manlicher Carcano rifle. Critics were also skeptical of the basic approach taken in the geometric analysis of the shots. Basically, they felt that the commission, true to its overall narrative, began with a theory of proving only that the trajectory of a shot, if taken from the sixth floor, could have arrived at the limousine at just the right angle to produce this damage. What critics wanted was a subtle but powerful difference in the way that part of the review would be conducted. Instead of starting at the sixth floor window and working to get to the limousine, they would start from the other end of the shot. That is, where the shot terminated in the limousine. In other words, start there and then work their way backwards using all the available forensic evidence, drawing an imaginary line backwards to the point of the shooter, wherever that line took them, whether it was the sixth floor or some other place. What critics wanted, they got. The HSCA would conduct their analysis this way. There was no laser yet or 3D computer animation on the scene yet in 1978, but at least this intellectually more honest approach to obtaining the right answer to a true forensic conclusion on where the shots came from seemed essential to the critics this time around. It's time for me to make a silly personal observation and comment about all of this. While there was yet no laser to use at Dealey Plaza, the distance to the first shot was roughly 165 to 200 feet away, and the final shot was only 265 feet away from the sixth floor window at the depository. The commission had already verified that a bullet fired from the Carcano rifle had an initial velocity of over 2,000 feet per second. Gravity has a certain pull on a bullet, but in that distance, traveling at that speed, the pull of gravity is less than one inch downward. It's virtually a straight line. And the HSCA conceded that in their 1978 analysis. So here is my point. When you were younger, did you ever take a piece of string and tie a can to each end of it? And with the help of a friend, pull it tight and talk to one another. Well, here is where I wish they would have stopped traffic one more time in 1978 on Elm Street and pulled a piece of string tight from the sixth floor and down to the limousine. And, you know, the last four or five feet of that string pull would have, well, it would have sung like the canary in the coal mine, delivering the common sense answer of what this angle really was, 
not an endless spewing of geometry angles and facts, either on paper or through the spoken word. You know, what I have already at least partially subjected you all to in previous episodes of this podcast. This would have been a picture worth a thousand words, and it didn't require any fancy technology, just a piece of string. I often say to my colleagues in business, don't turn a pencil into a rocket ship. You know, don't overcomplicate something simple when there is no need to do so. Of so many parts of the investigation that exist where a pencil was turned into a rocket ship, this one stands out in my own mind. All they needed to do was to head to a five and dime, remember there was no Home Depot in those days, and buy a ball of good twine rope and toss it out the sixth floor window and then pull it tight all the way down to the car. Then, a few pictures later, from all angles, left and right, top and bottom, and we would have a perfect physical rendition of the angle of descent and the right-to-left angle that the bullet really took, absent the impact of tumble and yaw. And whether that bullet truly was lined up between Kennedy's neck and Conley's right shoulder, and the real deviation resulting from all the other shucks and jives that that bullet took on that day. You know, that could still be done. And the amazing thing about it is that the scale model of Dealey Plaza and the assassination scene, the one constructed for the Warren Commission itself, has a rendition of those strings, one for each of the shots. The real thing, and the last four or five feet of the real thing, was what was really needed here, not a scale model. How ironic, you know, seeing is believing in this case. Well, that was a digression, and we have to get back to what really happened next. The HSCA had formed a prestigious photographic committee to perform all of the analysis. Robert Groden was a key figure on that committee. You will recall his name from earlier episodes when we told his story. His four-year labor of love that he had undertaken to restore and enhance a copy of the original Zabruder film. Well, it had made him a new and emerging figure in the conspiracy community. His masterpiece had certainly been a big contributor to why the HSCA and its activities were underway in 1978. But Professor Robert Blakey, who headed up the work done by the HSCA, was an academician, and he was acutely aware of the monolithic overtone of the Warren Commission's earlier work. He was going to conduct his investigation differently and avoid, at least, some of the mistakes that he felt the Warren Commission had made. So a committee of qualified individuals from a myriad of photographic technical backgrounds was assembled. A committee with the ability to see all the evidence and express individual opinions on complex subjects and then having the results of the committee vote be transparent to the readers of the final HSCA report. Well, that was part of Blakey's own cultural approach and what he felt was truly needed in this investigation to get to the truthful answer on things. And like I said, he wanted that contrasting approach to be front and center in many things related to the HSCA assassination review. Not all things, but many things. The Warren Commission and its staff despite criticism, did hold internal meetings and did consider the consensus of the group. 
and particularly on this topic related to the issue of whether there were multiple shooters involved. But it was clearly done in private, and conclusions drove what was necessarily disclosed. The single bullet theory, in fact, was born in two historic meetings of the Commission and its staff back in April 1964. Only the difference then was that after the initial meeting on April 14th, many of the Warren Commission staffers watching that Zapruder film came away with a conclusion on that day that there had to have been two shooters. That was a moment of crisis in one sense for the Warren Commission. That vote a vote that was never taken formally that day in April 1964, but surely present silently in the minds of each participant, was not to be broadcast in public. I'll digress and talk about one more thing that relates to these two historic meetings of the Commission staff. Assistant Counsel Melvin Eisenberg wrote in a memorandum dated April 22, 1964, on the first conference, and it's a memorandum of great historical significance. In that memorandum, he states that the consensus of those attending was, among other issues, that Kennedy was struck by frames 225 and 226, and that the velocity of the first bullet, which did strike Kennedy, would have been little diminished by its passage through the president. Therefore, if Governor Conley was in the path of the bullet, it would have struck him and caused the wounds he sustained in his chest cavity. The memo went on to say that strong indications that this occurred are provided by the facts that if the first bullet did not strike Governor Conley, it should have ripped up the car, but it apparently did not. There were other doubts, though, that lingered in the group, and the memorandum went on to state that, given the relatively undamaged condition of the bullet presumed to have done this, that is, Commission Exhibit 399, the consensus at that moment was that a separate bullet probably did strike Connolly's wrist and thigh. This is an extremely important point for us to stop and pause upon. This was common sense at work for sure, by the commission staffers, but probably before other experts got involved. It is not clear how familiar this group of lawyers was with the operation of rifles, probably not that experienced. In his memorandum, Eisenberg did not specify a precise frame for when it was thought Conley was struck by the same bullet which struck Kennedy, but the consensus was by Z-235, as Afterwards, his body position would not have allowed his back to be struck the way it was. Even the Warren Commission staff at this point were convinced that a single bullet shot could not have taken place after Z-235. Eisenberg's memo documented what happened in that first meeting. Now back to what happened next in the second meeting. A second meeting of the Commission staff was held on April 22, 1964, where, after much discussion, the Arlen Specter theory of a single bullet became the working hypothesis of the committee, a hypothesis that conveniently walked backward to one gunman and one gun and no conspiracy and only Lee Harvey Oswald to blame for this tragedy. So, in an effort to determine the number timing, and source of the shots that were fired at the presidential limousine, the HSCA formed its committee, 
formally known as the Photographic Evidence Panel of the HSCA. They conducted the following studies. First, the Zapruder film was studied for evidence of reactions to gunshots by both the limousine occupants and the Dealey Plaza witnesses, and to determine whether the relative alignment of Kennedy and Conley within the limousine was consistent with the single bullet theory. Still photographs pertinent to the single bullet theory controversy were also reviewed. Second, Blurs in the Zapruder film were analyzed to determine if they could be attributed with precision to the cameraman's reflex reaction to the sound of gunshots. At least from a common sense standpoint, it seemed that gunshots would startle a photographer and sensitive levels of camera jar recorded as timestamps, so to speak, on the Zapruder film could help answer the question on the timing of shots. Third, a trajectory analysis was conducted under the direction of an aerodynamics engineer from NASA. And fourth, photographs of the Dealey Plaza and Bronze in which it had been alleged that other gunmen could be seen were subjected to photographic enhancement and analysis. Based on the foregoing, the HSCA Photographic Committee was charged with trying to answer, at a minimum, three very specific questions. First, when did Kennedy first show a reaction to some severe external stimulus? Second, when did Conley first show a reaction to some severe external stimulus? And third, was the relative alignment of Kennedy and Conley within the limousine consistent with a single bullet theory? The Zapruder film was studied with care at each of the panel's conferences. At the final conference, which took place in July 1978, the film was closely scrutinized by more than 20 photographic scientists who are either members of the panel or contractors responsible for much of the committee's lab work, including the photographic enhancement and restoration work that was performed. At the panel's request, a specially enhanced version of the Zapruder film had been obtained, which stabilized and enlarged the images of Kennedy and Conley. The panel was also given access to the four previously unavailable frames, which showed the presidential limousine going behind the sign. And it was those frames that had previously been spliced out of the original Zapruder film. The same ones we spoke of in our previous podcast episode on the Zapruder film. Finally, computer-assisted enhancements of relevant frames from the Zapruder film were made available to panel members, but they were not reviewed until later. In total, the Zapruder film was viewed by this group on a frame-by-frame -frame basis and at various speeds approximately 100 times. A special analytical projector was used to facilitate this task. Because the quality of most of this film generally precluded analysis of facial expressions, primary emphasis was given to attempting to detect gross changes in body movements. As each frame was analyzed, proper consideration was given to the Zapruder film's exposure rate through the camera of 18.3 frames per second, that number we are now so all familiar with as a result of this podcast. In this manner, changes in body movements between frames could be better understood and at times even quantified. After completing its review of the film, the panel took a vote 
with regard to each of the issues that had been raised by the committee. The panel's vote focused on those reactions to severe external stimuli that may have been suggestive of impacting bullets. The conclusions were as follows. First, by a vote of 12 to 5, the panel determined that President Kennedy first showed a reaction to some severe external stimulus by Zapruder frame Z207. That's right at the point as he is going behind the street sign that obstructed Zapruder's view. Second, by a vote of 11 to 3, the panel determined that Governor Conley first showed a reaction to some severe external stimulus by Zapruder frame 224, virtually immediately after he is emerging from behind the sign that obstructed Zapruder's view. And third, by a vote of 15 to 1, the panel determined that the relative alignment of President Kennedy and Governor Conley in the limousine was consistent with the single bullet theory. Other non-photographic evidence was helpful as well. The HSCA's trajectory analysis would be traced backward to an area that was very close to the sixth floor window, close enough to conclude that the bullets had been fired from there. In the end, they also concluded that at least two shots had occurred that were spaced approximately six seconds apart and that were fired at the presidential limousine. That does not seem to be any startling revelation. There was plenty of other technical analysis performed to get to these and other conclusions, but it's time to close out the single bullet theory and get on to other important topics. Before I do that, though, there's just a couple more things of note before we conclude. Like the Warren Commission, the HSCA had its own chaotic moments that occurred within the photographic committee, and they too were captured in the annals of its report. They chronicled a rather scattered approach on these photographic analysis topics affecting the single bullet theory. Really, a voting approach that is at the very least surprising for such an incredible review of history. Without going into the details, in the end, they concluded that there was insufficient evidence to reach any conclusion concerning whether any additional shots took place. The statements leading up to this conclusion are scattered at best and not what you would expect from a world-class blue ribbon panel. At least, though, for conspiracy theorists, it left open the idea of a fourth shot or more. Clearly, the precision that came with the writing of the Warren Report, the precision that the commission staff had used to craft every part of its narrative, came from some of the top lawyers in the country, and of course, men capable of precision wordsmithing around any logic, either way, whether you agreed with it or not. That was clear. Such precision wordsmithing was not present in this section of the HSCA, and frankly, it feels lacking in credibility as a result. In the end, there would be lots more analysis by the HSCA, and it would feel more scientific in some ways. This would address somewhat some of the common sense issues that simply got overlooked in the Warren Commission analysis. A good example of that is the position of both the back seat and the front seat and where Kennedy and Conley were sitting. The HSCA report makes a good attempt 
at detailing and diagramming and explaining more precisely the juxtaposition of the seats and how Kennedy had taken an extreme right side position in his back seat as evidenced by his right arm resting on the side of the car sort of using it as a place to rest his arm as he intermittently took a break between waves to the crowd. You know that position. You probably assumed it yourself in a car at one point or another. It was an increment of truth that satisfied one of the lingering issues, but there were still so many important aspects that remained open. In the end, the HSCA would definitely reaffirm that they believed the single bullet theory was true but they left it open that there may have been more than three shots and that a conspiracy of the shooters was still possible. They would hang their hat on acoustical evidence, which was a difficult public sell at best. And in some ways, over time, the newly introduced acoustical evidence would take on more scrutiny and create more criticism than any one particular finding of the Warren Commission. But for now, this newly introduced acoustical evidence and its analysis would point to at least one shot coming from the Grassy Knoll area. At least this part of the HSCA analysis was a vindication of the core issues that conspiracy theorists knew in their own minds all along. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.